this episode of Dirty History, I sit down with Sam Panacchiao of Vinyl Junkies. At the time of recording this introduction, Sam has, for the past 230 days, broadcasted pirate radio streams three to five hours a night on YouTube and Twitch. No breaks, no gaps, no permission. What's pirate radio, you ask? In usage, it refers to any broadcaster without a valid license. In Sam's case, he eschews copyright restrictions and provides people with that classic AM style of radio, but digitally. Those of us who watch his show do so out of necessity, out of concern that discovering new music benefits from that human touch, that distinctly human ability to build an emotional appeal, a sense of community around music. After all, listening to new music is a learning experience. I mean, as you find yourself interested in an artist and exploring their catalog, influences, and similar groups, you develop a language of that artist and of that genre at that specific time. Sam, slinging The Soft Machine, Mark Patton, A Tribe Called Quest, John Wayne, and The Comet Is Coming in Short Order, always has a lesson in store for you. Moreover, there is a method to this madness. Vinyl Junkie sells many of the records you may hear on the show. And I don't mean selling them as they do on iTunes, where you can purchase a single digital track with some spare change, and it's not like Spotify where you pay for a subscription to make playlists. Sam has fused the digital with the analog. What you hear is a physical copy of that music. What you buy is a physical copy of that music, thereby adding a whole tactile dimension to the listening experience. Which brings me to the idea that if you asked someone 10 years ago, I doubt they would have listed YouTube as a bastion for radio. But alas, here we are. Someone subverting the expectations of a medium and creating something truly special, an honest-to-God community of music lovers without much a hint of snobbery. And I think that can largely be attributed to Sam, an old codger who violates copyright law, smokes weed on the air while casually sipping a Campari and soda between impromptu musical performances all meant to avoid the stream being shut down, he breaks away from the norm. And that doesn't mean he's some rogue, degenerate broadcaster who's a danger to public health. It means the show's refreshing. It's not overproduced or overcomplicated. It's a guy with a lot of stories and a lot of records who just happens to have a camera and microphone in front of him. The same could be said of this conversation. It begins in media res, in the middle of things, and typically I like to talk to a guest for a few minutes before I start recording. However, I quickly realized that hitting the record button in the middle of that conversation was just what this show needed, was just what this episode needed. A laid-back vibe with two people discussing records, the joys of liner notes, the process of building an online community, copyright, fair use, YouTube, and a little jazz history for good measure. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Sam Panacchio. I mean, when it came to music, I always went to it. When it came to art, I always went to it. So I am the guy who will go and say, oh, that looks interesting. I'm going to go buy it. Okay. And I bought a ton of records that way. So, I mean, 
have a look, you know. Portuguese nuggets, you know. A trip to 60s Portugal beach surf and garage rock. Now, I mean, I didn't even know what the cover looked like when I bought yeah. this. I just saw it in our store, vinyljunkies.store, mm-hmm. and it's like, fuck, I know I'm going to like this. You buy it, and it winds up being something that you like. And then what do you do? You start looking at all the artists, and you start remembering some of the names as you're reading the liner notes. And then next time you see an album, because a lot of these compilations start as compilations, but they wind up, the, the artists that they're able to get cataloged, they wind up taking these albums and releasing them individually. And before you know it, you have music from the individual artists. And before you know it, you've developed a language for Portuguese surf and garage rock that you didn't have. And this is where it started, with just with just being curious with a title like Portuguese Nuggets Volume 1, A Trip to 60s Portuguese Beach Surf and Garage Rock, man. You get that, it's like, yeah, that's my shit. Mm-hmm. So the spirit, the spirit of discovery, the, the, the that sense of curiosity, that sense of wonderment cannot be dulled, okay? And it can't be canned either. It can't be put into a box. Ultimately, that's what they're trying. They're all trying to find that type of thing. Every, you know, everybody wants that it thing. And it's those magic moments that capture something special. Take that then and try to create an ad campaign around it. Certainly, certainly not with something as impersonal as the internet. The internet is extremely impersonal to a lot of people. And I think the reason that people are as mean as they are to each other is because they don't realize that there's a human being on the other side of things. The human empathy disappears completely once you stop looking at the other person as a human being. It's once you recognize the other person as a human being fully like yourself that you're able to develop any type of personal connection or any type of empathy. And on the internet, that's been completely removed. So you would think that there's got to be this idea of, wait a second, how can you take this tool that everyone uses all the time and humanize it? Bring it, bring that technology and realize that anything that's out there is a tool. Sure, Google is the devil. Amazon is the devil. Facebook is the devil. They're all fucking devils, but they're tools also. So you use the fucking tool for what it's meant to use. And if you really complain about things being impersonal, then do something about it. Humanize the experience. The way you humanize the experience is a conversation like we're having right now. In this case, a monologue right now. But (laughs) what we're doing right now. You understand what I'm saying? It's the conversation that leaves the impact. It's that personalization. So, I mean, when it comes to vinyl junkies, I think that's the secret sauce. The secret sauce is you guys, okay? Because I might be the voice there. I might have the soundtrack. I might have the music. But, I mean, you guys can always pick a song, okay? And there's a community of people there that they're all music nerds Mm -hmm. listening. And the minute a song comes on, beginning a real-time conversation on that. So if you watch a show for, like, Vinyl Junkies, you're listening to a show that'll give you three hours of real-time music, interactive experience delivered in an AM radio style type of thing, the old radio way of doing things. And that's massively effective. 
because at least there was a voice talking to you. At least when they were playing singles, okay, on the radio and say, this is a single off the new album that's coming out in two weeks, at least there was a voice. And after that voice, they could talk before the song, they mm -hmm. could talk after the song, and you're humanizing the experience. That doesn't exist on a Spotify playlist. That human element is no longer there. And it's affected the way people consume their art. Attention spans have dropped. I mean, including my own, of course. But how can you enjoy a qualitative experience if your only concern is to be efficient? Is that what you see yourself trying to do with Vinyl Junkies? Humanize the experience a little bit, you know, for these people who are trying to find new music because you find it can't be replicated on something like Spotify or Apple Music or Beats or whatever it is that, you know, is algorithmic based when it recommends you music. Well, I mean, that's, per, that, that's exactly what it is that I'm trying to do with Vinyl Junkies. I mean, I think the best way to show something is to show it. As simple as that. Okay, so just because it doesn't exist, it's like I know. Don't you? You, you can't. I, I'm fifty. I'm fifty years old. I've been doing this my entire life. There's nobody that can tell me how to pick music and how to curate stuff that I like. When I've been working on this curation, my lifetime curation has lasted this long. There is no outside person that can influence that. And the minute you try to influence that with an algorithm, it's like, look, man, I'll see through a lot of it. And the thing is, is that we're seeing it. There's fatigue. People see through it. So it comes back to the term I just made. It's like the only way to show people is to show people. So if I think I have the answer, I can talk about it on the one hand, or I can do it. And that's exactly what I did with my show. I turn on a show. Part of it is talk radio. Part of it is music. We talk about music. We talk about life in general because people need people need safe spaces on the internet. So by providing a show like this, there's a room there full, filled with people and everyone's being cool to each other because the minute you act like an asshole, you're thrown out. And that's a good thing. People have to understand that if you want your experience to be better, any experience in life, in this case, when you're talking about the online experience or, or your relationship to music, if you wish that it was better, I mean, if you really give a shit about it, then you'll actively do something to make that experience personal, okay? Now, I've done that, and for me, the best way to show that is to speak, to speak towards my own experience with music. Mm -hmm. And when I used to, the minute the physical format disappeared, like the minute the physical format disappeared, my relationship with music changed. It started diminishing and I didn't even know it because it was so fucking convenient to download gigabyte upon gigabyte of flax, MP3s, whatever format you want. It was available everywhere. Soulseek, everywhere. All right. Uh, what was the big one? Napster, that kind of yeah. deal, right? All Lime these wire. things, LimeWire, exactly, all that stuff. So it's like gigabyte upon gigabyte of music. Now, the beautiful thing about that is that it allowed me to discover stuff that I would never know before, okay? So my guess would be that if it wasn't for the MP3 era where I stole gigabyte after gigabyte of music, 
I would not know about Turkish psych. Yeah. I would not know about Japanese psych. There are a whole lot of things that I wouldn't know. Okay. But when vinyl came back, I mean, I had noticed that my attention span had shrunk like crazy. And I realized that my relationship with music was just not the same. Mm -hmm. So when vinyl came back, I said, well, look, if I have to go back to a format, I'm going to go back to vinyl. Why? Not because it sounds better. None of that. It's because it provides a more qualitative experience and it actually extends the period that you spend with a piece of music because it takes time to grab a record. You open it up. You take a look at the beautiful gatefold. You read the liner notes. You pull out the record. You inspect it. You drop it on. You drop the need. Uh, the, the thing on the platter. You see, it feels a certain way. Well-made records feel a certain way. And then you drop the needle, and you hear that. It's like, I mean, here. Come on, tell me this doesn't sound great to you. I don't know if you're gonna. Oh fuck, you're not gonna be able to hear it though. That sucks. I, I wanted to give you a needle drop. You know, there's that entire experience that is not the music, mm -hmm. but it is the music experience. It is all of those elements that are inconvenient because those elements take time. But those are the elements that make the experience a good experience. If you want to connect with something, you have to spend time with it and you have to involve yourself with it. You have to have the sensual experience. And the minute it is that you can take a music experience, which is supposed to be with the ears, and you add the tactile part of it, you add the interactive part of it, it even smells a certain way. No, you're right. Exactly. I mean, most everyone I know that collects records understands that there is a process. You know, that there's that ritual to dropping the needle. It's selecting the yes. album. It's pulling yes. it out of the stack, sliding the record out of the sleeve, lining the needle up, pouring a drink, and, you know, reading the liner notes. It's, it's fantastic. Every time I play a new record, it's a learning experience, which is how you described discovering new music in general, right? You have that curiosity that drives you into just going deeper and deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. I read so much about the state of jazz in the late fifties because I have that Duke Ellington at Newport record and the liner notes on that are just, are just fantastic. You know, talking you just, about, uh, you're talking about the Paul Gonzalez uh, saxophone solo. Oh my gosh. Yes. It, yes. That and, solo dude, that solo changed his fucking career. That solo by that time. Sorry. I, 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 I don't want to fucking, you're going to go back to it. Okay. You're going to tell me your part, but that solo, that Paul Gonzalez solo, mm -hmm. People were leaving Newport. They were leaving the jazz festival until he started that fucking solo. People went crazy. There's this scene on YouTube of this white woman dancing her ass off to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And you hear in that thing, you hear that the crowd's just getting louder and louder and louder. And by that time, okay, this is big band music, mm -hmm. right? So by the time that this came out, which was, I think, 55, 56 or something, yep. big band music was on the out big time. Mm -hmm. Jazz outfits could not afford to keep big bands anymore. Smaller outfits were a lot more affordable. They could play a lot more clubs. So the entire economy of jazz, of playing as a jazz musician, was completely against what Duke Ellington was doing. Duke Ellington had pretty much one of the only big bands left by that time. And he wasn't doing nearly as well as before. The minute that fucking solo happened, that Paul Gonzalez solo changed his entire career and he stayed at the top forever. That solo, man. Mm -hmm. And people were on their feet, on, on top of their chairs dancing. 
there was a riot. The police were called in. It was, it's, you, you hear you it on the that? record when they try to calm them down, you know, it's, it stuck with me because at that time I really wasn't listening to big band. You know, I was listening to um, my favorite probably jazz album at the time was black Saint and the center lady, uh, Charles Mingus. Like that's, oh, yes. that's the direction I was in. And then I, my grandfather used to have a record store and uh, he said, he gave me all the records he had. It was an amazing, amazing collection. And that was one of the albums, the Duke Ellington album. And in that moment, I just, I fell in love with Duke Ellington, you know, I don't know, something about Jeep's blues, the, that solo on uh, Dinuendo and blue. It just, whew, it blew me away. Blew me well, away. Well, you know, you know, he wrote the Caravan, right? I didn't know he wrote it. No. Yeah, yeah. Caravan's his song. I don't remember exactly where this was, but I remember reading that there was a Caravan Festival, okay, that yeah. was held somewhere. And during this festival, it was just one band after another playing Caravan. An entire festival dedicated yeah. to one song man that's not really the it's not the case anymore i mean outside of what folk music outside of jazz and outside of i mean there's only two blues i guess there's not like you know the standard songs that get reused by every band like a rite of passage yeah you're right um yeah you're right you're absolutely right i think i think one of the reasons for that i would think i mean I, i'm just speculating here but once upon a time, the um, songwriters and the artists who played the music weren't necessarily the same thing. Mm -hmm. So you had professional songwriters. Yeah. So Rodgers and Hammerstein, for example. Uh, what's his name? Oh, fuck, there's so many and they're not coming to me right now. But, Cole you know, part of a Cole Porter, that's mm -hmm. exactly right. You know, it's like... All of the Rod McEwen, Burt Bacharach, if you go any further, okay? The Brill Building was a building in New York that had an entire floor of songwriting, of songwriters. And it was a songwriting factory, okay? So people like Carol King, before they released a record, before they ever were known for any of that, were writing hit songs for other people. Same thing with Isaac Hayes and a lot of these artists. And those were kind of two things that were often completely separate not not with jazz not with blues that's not the same thing but when you're talking about pop music somebody else often wrote the song and the artist performed it mm -hmm. and um i think what happens there is that when someone writes the song the song doesn't belong to an artist the song is the song it's written and now it is open for interpretation by a variety of people. So if you take the Cole Porter sound, uh, songbook, everybody has interpreted the Cole Porter songbook because the Cole Porter songbook was presented exactly as that. These, this is the song, this is the structure, this is the way it is, but it's not Cole Porter that played it. The, he created this, he crafted this, and mm -hmm. then other people took it and interpreted it and made it their own. You know, so there was a lot more of that. Now, I mean, obviously, somebody writes a song and it's their song. So what happens is that you're not interpreting something. No one's covering a Cole Porter song. You're, you're interpreting a Cole Porter song. Yeah. Now you're covering songs. If you do Freebirds, you're covering Freebirds. Mm -hmm. You're not interpreting Freebird. And if you interpret Freebird, a lot of people won't even give you the chance to do that. They'll think you're a twat for trying. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And when someone does, 
get the opportunity to like interpret another artist's song, it's a big deal. Like Johnny Cash with Hurt. Like that's so memorable because he takes that song and makes it his own. Yeah. I mean, to the point where uh, Reznor pretty much told him, this is your song now. Mm -hmm. I mean, Reznor acknowledged immediately that one, you know, Johnny Cash did Hurt. It's like, what are you fucking kidding? This is... This is now your song. And everybody, when they think about Hurt, it's the best version. But again, he covered. He covered the song. And it is Reznor at that point that said, this song is not mine anymore. It's yours. Mm-hmm. You understand? But yeah. is anybody else going to go out and touch Hurt? Especially after Johnny Cash did what he... So, so it's like the Cole Porter catalog, just to get back to that Rogers and Hammerstein, any, mm-hmm. all of those old songwriters, Libenstaller, these people wrote songs, but they were meant to be interpreted yeah. by others. Music today is a lot of the times done by the artist. And it's supposed to be like, it's attributable to one artist. And if you play that song, then what you do is you cover it. Okay. So if a jazz band comes on and plays a bunch of Cole Porter tunes, Let's say they do a set of Cole Porter tunes. Nobody will say that the jazz band is a co- is is a cover band of Cole Porter. Nobody will say that, because <laughs> yeah, yeah. jazz bands interpret the Cole Porter catalog. If, however, you go on stage and you start playing a bunch of the Rolling Stones songs, then you're a cover band. At some point, it 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 changed. Yeah. Well, I think that it's just once once the the, the person who wrote the song performed the song it changed you'll see that in the 60s and 70s there was still that point where it was singer songwriter and those people wrote songs that were meant to be interpreted so you'll see that there's a whole bunch of artists around that time carol king Joni mitchell neil young towns van zandt you'll notice that their catalog is treated very differently yeah because their catalog is interpreted because those songs even then, there was that transition of singer-songwriter type of thing. But it's like, oh, I do play the song, but I play it also myself. So you'll notice like, that in the 60s and the 70s, there's a lot of same interpretations of the same song. Okay, But yeah. now, you have people like Carole King, not just writing the song in the Brill Building, but performing it as well. And their songs can be still circulated in the way that you know, stuff from jazz, the earlier stuff is. I mean, how many different Dylan covers have you heard? And it's just like, and, and they're terrific. I mean, sure. you know, when Hendrix takes a Bob Dylan song, not, whose song is it at that point? Because, you know, yes, the Dylan song is classic, but sure. yes, so is the Hendrix song. Yeah. And notice, try to go past, let's say, 73 and start thinking about songs that now are interpreted rather than covered and you'll notice at 73 all of a sudden think people start covering songs rather than interpreting mm-hmm. it's that 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 seems to be like the shift is really once the band starts writing composing their own thing and and performing their own thing you know before that a song was a song that was the art it's like a poet i, I mean wordsworth wrote the poems mm-hmm. you didn't need wordsworth to read the poems to you that's another thing. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Shakespeare wrote the plays. He didn't act in them, though. You know? So mm. there was this entire thing, whereas now the person on the stage actually 
created the material that they're performing. So they're taking ownership of the entire thing, not only the craftsmanship, but the actual performance and what the piece sounds like. So at that point, you're putting a much more personal stamp on it. And anybody else that listens or anybody else that does something with it is covering it. I mean, Stairway to Heaven is always going to be Led Zeppelin. There's, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You're covering a Led Zeppelin song. Has anybody covered Led Zeppelin? Hart did, didn't they? They did a, they, yeah, at a um, Carnegie Hall. It, it was a, yeah, it was um, a Led Zeppelin trip. The Kennedy Honors or whatever. Yeah, the Kennedy Center Honors and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that the same one that Aretha Franklin did, uh, Natural Woman? Ooh, I'm not sure. Mm, there was a Ken, there was a Kennedy Center Honor one also. Mm-hmm. where Aretha Franklin, well, like, you know, later on in her life, did, um, she performed uh, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman, and Carol King was in the audience right next to the Obamas, and she has this fur coat on, she just drops it, and it's like, you see Carol King in the crowd, like, losing her fucking mind, mm-hmm. singing along with Aretha Franklin, who's singing her song. It was, it's just one of those moments that's so magical, you know? So I guess I'm thinking about this and we're, we're, we're discussing a lot of different artists, a lot of different music, and it, it really just makes total sense to me because I know I probably speak for many of the other watchers and listeners of Vinyl Junkies when I say that through your show, you've introduced me to so much music, as I'm sure many of the listeners of this particular podcast will also get from our conversation. I mean, Jaga Jazz is the soft machine, Tim Maya, Mark Patton, the Comet is coming. That one really stuck with me. Uh, John Prine and Moondog. I mean, those are just a few of them. Did you have anyone like that in your life? You know, looking back, were there any standout figures on radio or writing about music that expanded your taste, that inspired you to go out and find something new? Um... I mean, early on, I was a metalhead. So I used to buy the magazines and I became part of the whole fanzine scene, you know, so the trade, the tape trading and stuff. So, you know, uh, that used to be it. You know, there was a loose community of people who loved metal so much that they would write to each other. They would burn tapes for each other and send them overseas. And it would take six to eight weeks for those packages to come by. I remember that very clearly. You know, so there was this entire underground thing, a fanzine scene that I used to, that, that, that got me into metal a lot earlier than a lot of, like, you know, just got me into metal right away. So, I mean, in that case, printed media was the case. I mean, when I was three, uh, I mean, that's my earliest memory. You know, I remember playing my uncle's, my uncle's records and, I mean, can I say that he influenced me? Well, obviously, but do I have any memory of playing the music with him? No. When he was off to work, I couldn't take my hands off the records because he had Alice Cooper Killer. And when you're going to give a three-year-old the cover of a record with a big red snake on it, mm-hmm. you're gonna the kid's going to want to, like, oh, okay. So my curiosity made it so that I would go to the turntable, drop the needle as a kid, and listen to the damn thing. And... Same thing with Rolling Stone, Sticky Fingers. Yeah, with the original zipper, everything. I broke the fucking zipper. I'm the one who broke it, you know? And it's like, okay, a man's underwear. I didn't understand the bulge until much later. (laughs) But like a man's underwear was like, what is this? And you drop the needle and you hear bitch. And then you get a little older and you realize what bitch is. 
So, I mean, there's that influence. I remember listening to Led Zeppelin one in the same way, Grand Funk Railroad's Survival. I mean, I remember those albums like they were yesterday because they were part of my, um, I mean, you know, you can say it's an influence, but my uncle had a collection of rock records and those rock records are still some of my favorites now. I mean, by the time five or six came along, Kiss was there and everybody loved Kiss. The makeup, so it's like I'm, you know, six years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was a time when they used to sell records in grocery stores. So I remember going for groceries with my mom and dad, and they used to have it in this local grocer called uh, Steinberg. The Steinberg family used to have a whole... Uh, you know, a whole bunch of grocery stores locally here in Montreal. And what they would do is they would place, just they do, the way they do with magazine racks now, right? They place, you'll notice, like, you know, the gum, chocolate, and that kind of stuff right at the checkout counter. because Or lighters, mm -hmm. right? Because people just grab them like that and they add. You know, it's like basically you're selling up your customer kind of thing. Yeah. So what they would do is in exactly the same way during the 70s, they used to have these big racks of records that were there and they stood right before the line. You know, they weren't like these super line, these super checkout lines, but right before the checkout line. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing Kiss albums there and pestering my parents until they bought me Rock and Roll Over. Yeah. And I mean, that's the first time. That's what I say is my first record, Rock and Roll Over. I was six. And the cartoon aspect of the whole thing made it. But, I mean, this many years later, I'm still a KISS fan. This many years later, I still have that same rock and roll over. And it still has sketch marks. It's got pencil marks. In, like, not pencil marks, but the indentation all on the drawing. Because as a kid, I used to put a piece of loose leaf over it and just spend all day tracing it so that I can draw the characters on the on the thing you know so it's like yeah you have these memories um later on i mean i met some friends that got me into this music and that music but i was always the guy that uh, kind of i mean i guess that's what made me a weirdo you know it's like uh i was always the guy who was interested in listening to oh what's over there kind of thing when everybody else is looking over here mm -hmm. and i still listened to what's over here but I was also very curious about what's over there. Yeah. And when it came to having to talk to people about what's over there, people weren't interested. So um, listening to music, just art was very alienating for a long, long time. Because um, at that point, what do you do? I mean, what do you do if you like something and nobody else likes it and you don't have anybody else to talk to about it? You either give it up and you go do what they do, or you keep a part of yourself and you just realize this is a fucking solo project. I mean, so musical discovery by and large for myself is my own curiosity. Like I, I taught myself how to listen to jazz. I taught myself, and it was, I remember when it happened. I mean, I was what, 16, not 16, I was 18 years old. I was 18 years old, a lifelong metalhead, and um, it was my first years of college, that type of thing. And I decided, I had seen this girl in high school. She was so pretty, but nobody knew her. She kept quiet. She was just one of these kind of like oddities, but beautiful. And I was always curious because she always had headphones on. And I asked her at one point, I was like, hey, what are you listening to? 
and she gave me the headphones and she was listening to classical music and it blew my mind because it's like ah this person is so not like everybody else yeah and um that's kind of where music went and um i taught i decided like actually as an intellectual exercise almost at 18 it's like i don't want to listen to only metal anymore i don't want to listen to only rock derived music anymore i want to understand jazz and i went about listening to jazz like it like learning a language and i remember the the, the the blocks dude i remember charlie parker i could not do charlie parker listening to cherokee for the first time listening to scrapple from the apple for the first time i remember those early memories like i am not getting this and listening to dizzy gillespie and not getting it mm -hmm. And then fucking Charles Mingus came along. Exactly. Charles Mingus came. Charles Mingus all of a sudden started doing all of this stuff. But there was a basis of religious music in there. There was a basis of gospel. There was a basis of the blues there. There was a basis of folk music there. All this stuff, which is the same building blocks that rock and roll was based on. So in a certain sense, he used, a, he used some of those same building blocks, the blues, and infused it into jazz. That right there, it's like, boom, a bell rang. It's like Charles Mingus. I went out, I got myself a double CD of Charles Mingus. I fucking absorbed every track. And from there, made it my mission to own every song and on, no, own every album. And I now have every fucking album on that. And it's like, I might be 50 Mingus albums yeah. deep. You know, now I have a good collection of Mingus records and I know them, but the way it started was me just reaching a point where it's like it's an intellectual exercise mm -hmm. because nobody listened to jazz around me. Nobody listened to classical music around me. The one kid that I knew other than this really pretty girl was years ago. His father was a watchmaker, okay? And he used to love listening to classical music and they used to pick on him relentlessly for it. Mm -hmm. And I was the only guy who would say, really, you like classical music? And I remember him just sheepishly saying, yes. It's like, okay, well, why don't you tell me about it? You know, but yeah. people sometimes use art as a uniform. And that uniform very often isn't an inclusive one. It tells you that we are this. And if you are not this, you are not welcome. It's a line, okay? And you see it in the black metal community. You see it in the punk community. All these fucking people that talk about the fake punks and the fake metalheads. Fuck off. Yeah. Fuck off with all of that. It's what you like that matters and that's it. People are trying to fit into this idea of a uniform. Con conf they're trying to not conform by conforming to something. And that's kind of never jived with me. And that's why, you know, when you ask me the question of, was there anybody in my life like that? No, not really. Only until very much, much later, there was a friend who used to listen to jazz, Mark Choden, who used to listen to jazz. And this guy listened to stuff that was completely off the charts. So it's through him that I got to listen to John Zorn Masada for the first time. I knew only John Zorn from the crazy stuff, from Painkiller and all this. He's the guy who introduced me to John Zorn Masada. He's the guy who introduced me to Tim Byrne, James Blood Ulmer, uh, fucking David Binney, a whole bunch of like these more obscure jazz guys. Mm -hmm. And we actually hadn't spoken for 
two decades or something like that. And uh, believe it or not, he saw one of the, um, the, 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 I don't know if you saw the Radiohead video. Uh, which one? Okay, computer. Yeah, I've watched that one. Yeah. Okay. So he saw that and contacted me after 20 years. And oh, now wow. we're talking. So that one person that I really remember in that way mm-hmm. was gone for 20 years. And he actually just came back because of the show. That's, that's awesome. I mean, and that, that makes so much sense to me because, I mean, something that struck me immediately about your show was its ability to build that sense of comfort of community. You know, like we're all sitting around the couch listening to records and you reference that idea a bunch throughout any given show. I mean, was that something you tried to create or that happened organically? You just set up a camera and a mic and you, you just listen to music like you normally would and then people showed up and they built a com- community around what you did? Well, look, I mean, I'm a dirtbag now, but I used to be, I used to be a banker. I used to work in the finance industry. I worked mm-hmm. in the life insurance industry, the finance industry, uh, and worked in a bank. Basically that entire thing made me realize that I wasn't made for that. And I subsequently had a nervous breakdown when I completely snapped and realized I do not function well here. I cannot do this. The two vacations a year and the nice car is not worth the fact that I am deeply unhappy and can't continue. So basically, I had a nervous breakdown and I had to put myself completely together. From there, it's there that my, that, that, that my, my love of vinyl rekindled because I would stay home, I'd play the records, and it used to comfort me. The entire ritual comforted me. Looking at the covers, reading, it made me feel like connected when I was a kid and doing that after school. Um, And now I had time on my hands because, well, I had a nervous breakdown. So I had time to fill. I've been on the internet since 97. So I've been part of those music groups since the very, very beginning. Since they used to be, news groups used to exist in an email program once upon a time. Before the internet and everything, they used to exist in an email program. And I used to belong to those types of groups. So... I've been in those groups all of my life. And the one thing that always happens, and I was one of those guys, is that you'd come across the pretentious assholes who need to tell you what is and what is not. And I absolutely copped to being one of those guys. You fast forward to 2000, to, to the year 2000 or 99 or something like that, and I'm going back to music and I'm spending time on the internet as I'm basically trying to put myself together and these news groups were filled with assholes i didn't need that so i knew it's like no i mean if i want to do this i have to do it right it didn't exist so i created it so i mean uh vinyl junkies was founded from um from facebook basically as a group with a bunch of rules in place that say hey this is what we do we enjoy music don't post links of this and that if you're going to do something then what you do is post a picture of your record because we want to know about your record and your connection. And when you do that, don't just post a picture underneath in the comment section, put a link to the music. Why? So that if people find the cover interesting, they may go and they may discover. And by doing that, you're already setting a path for communication, Mm -hmm. right? And um, so basically the path is started by you. By adding the link to your picture right away, you're encouraging a conversation. You do that, and I knew that I didn't want any of the bullshit around in my room. So I used to, and I still do, just block 
any negative talk. So no politics, no religion. How much did you pay your record? Who gives a fuck? Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because if you start letting money amounts be talked about, okay, you know what winds up happening? Everybody starts focusing on the money. Everybody, what you wind up doing is you wind up attracting a community full of people of those record collectors, those collectors of things that know that they bought the record for five cents. They now it's, you know, they sold, they could have sold it for 10 cents and now it's worth 25 cents. And it's yeah. like, guess what, folks? That's not music. That's commerce. Mm -hmm. If you want to talk about trading, go get yourself an online fucking stock account and go trade stocks. How is that related to music? Okay, and this, I'm telling you, your listeners are not going to agree with me on this. So how dare he? Hey, listen, if you're talking about music, when you go somewhere and you have a beautiful bottle of champagne, what do you, well, I don't drink champagne. But if you go to a meal and you have a beautiful meal, are you the guy that talks about how much you paid your meal? Because if you are, you're an asshole. No, I, I would totally agree with that statement. That's completely fair. So what you it's do is you create... the experience more than anything. <clears throat> so what I'm saying is what you do is you create that. And you set the example what winds up happening is you wind up attracting people like you and because they do the same thing they set the example now once you're in a garden okay if you're walking through a garden if you're walking through a park and the park is pristine it's absolutely clean okay you are going to be much less likely to take your garbage and dump it on the ground if you're in that, now, now take that exact example, okay? This is the broken windows theory, mm -hmm. okay? You take that exact example. You're in a park, right? Now, this person throws the garbage on the floor. You can have one of two reactions. One reaction is you have people around saying, hey, you know, or pick it up for them and throw it in the garbage or, hey, the garbage is right there, right? Yeah. Or you can leave him do that and you leave the garbage on the floor. The next person that walks by, what winds up happening? They see a piece of garbage on the floor. Now, most people aren't okay with throwing garbage, but that one guy now that passed out of 100 in that park that saw that piece of garbage on the floor, you know what he's going to do? He's going to throw another piece of garbage. And now the garbage on the floor has doubled. And mm -hmm. what you're doing is you're attracting garbage and the people who, are who tend to throw garbage on the ground instead of where it's supposed to be thrown or keeping it with them, okay? If you keep with that behavior and everybody cleans up after themselves, you have a beautiful park that everybody wants to be in, even the people that litter, but you're not letting the people that litter in because the people that litter don't understand that they're destroying the very thing that they're there for. So if you take that analogy, when it comes to music and what you were asking me about the community, I was the guy who did that. I attracted one person and that person attracted another two. And this thing happened around us. And when we moved to YouTube, I took the same ideas and basically a community formed around it. Yeah, okay. So I wanna dig a little deeper into that point. Because I've, I've always felt that if you really want to get to know someone the first time you meet them, you don't ask them what they do for a living. You don't talk about politics or religion. You ask them, tell them, you know, tell me your dirty jokes. Let's exchange some amusing stories. And you'll know where they draw the line, the scope of their sense of humor, what they poke fun at, what they're self-conscious about. I, I say this because it seems that when the live stream's going on YouTube and you're just being you, we're exchanging stories, you're telling dirty jokes, which is not always the case across YouTube. I mean, with that fact in mind, 
do you ever feel pressure to pull your punches or self-censor or change that since you're on YouTube? Is there some sort of issue there or? Can't do it. You, I mean, one of my favorite quotes in music is a Bowie quote. Never play to the gallery. You never play to the gallery. You don't give them what they want. You, in order for you to stay relevant, in order for you to do something that makes, that's real, you can't play safe. So another thing the Bowie would say is that creativity happens when, if your feet are touching the bottom of the lake, there's no creativity happening. It's when your feet are six inches from the bottom of the lake and you have to swim. Mm -hmm. That's where the stuff happens. That's where you're creating something. That's where you're really putting in an effort. And that's the reality. So I can't worry about what the norm is. I mean, yeah. what happens there is that... Um, I risk saying things that maybe I don't want to say. I can risk, I, I risk making mistakes. That's basically it. Yeah. Okay. But ultimately, I look within my own heart and I know that I have no hatred in my heart, none. So even if I say something that's wrong, what it is that I've done is I make a mistake. And what do you do? You own your mistake. And if you own your mistake, that's the way it is that you get better. By understand, you understand something by doing it wrong. So the minute it is that anyone censors themselves, they are taking away their ability to learn anything because they're so fucking scared of saying what's really on their mind that they're not being themselves. Or, you know, it's just you have to be able to say what you have to say and you know what? If your heart is ugly, unfortunately, people are going to see that your heart is ugly. But if your intent is not to hurt and you wind up hurting mm -hmm. somebody else, if you think that you um, that you had a, a, a you know that you really had a, a role in that, then you reconsider, you own it, and you continue. Okay. If you think that it's really on them, then you have that. But the thing is, is that there's that process. The only way that process happens is if you're authentic. The only way that process happens is if you don't censor yourself. If you censor yourself, you're going to have boxed answers. And I mean, if you want to live your life as a politician, go ahead, not me. So that said, the answer kind of is both ways. Will I censor myself? No. On the other hand, will I change my approach? Will I change how I use words or omit some words? Yes. As I go on, if it shows me that because if I'm talking, the words are supposed to convey what I'm trying to say. If the words are not conveying, conveying what I have in my heart, then I'm not communicating properly. So will I change my message, my approach and everything? I think that's the craft. Yeah. I mean, yourself too. I mean, what you do over here is you're, 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 you're always perfecting your craft in order to perfect your craft. That means you have to suck at some point. Yeah. Sucking means make, making mistakes. If you censor yourself, if you're scared of sucking and you're censoring yourself or you're doing things the way you think they should be, you're never going to find your own voice. Yeah. So it's, it's a learning experience. You, you pick up, you don't censor yourself, but you do change because that's the only way you grow. It's the only way you get better as you as a host. You don't learn how to skateboard unless you break a bone. You don't learn how to ride a bike unless you fall. It doesn't exist. Yeah. It doesn't exist. And if you're scared of falling, then don't get on a bike. You're safe, 
but you'll never learn how to ride a bike. No, I mean, every, every time I watch like a behind the scenes or a interview with a comedian, they always talk about how you got to bomb. You're going to bomb. It's going to happen. You're going to get on stage. No one's going to laugh. You learn from it. You get better. Yeah. How long have you, uh, how long have you been broadcasting for on YouTube? Um, I don't know. I think uh, the YouTube channel has been around since 2003, 2004, but there weren't any regular videos. As a matter of fact, for years, I did nothing at all. I just kind of like shot a video here, a video there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I interviewed a few bands, that kind of thing. But um, I started broadcasting twice a week last year or the year before, let's say, mm-hmm. just like that. And, but there was no set schedule. And then gingivitis came along. And uh, gingivitis changed everything. So everyone's under lockdown. Everyone's freaked the, fuck out, uh, freaked the fuck out because they don't know what's happening. They just know that their life as they know it has completely changed. They're not allowed to do anything. And it elicits a whole bunch of responses from a whole bunch of people all around. So basically, what I'm describing is a time of great difficulty. This is a time of great difficulty that all of us share. 2020 is something that we all share. It was hard on everybody. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, when I looked at that entire thing, and uh, I mean, what am I going to do during this time? I mean, I'm going to get crushed by this thing. It's like, what do I do? What do I do? Um, And the only thing I thought to myself is, well, if I'm doing the show, okay, well, I'm going to broadcast. And then very quickly, it dawned on me that the broadcasts, it's like, if this COVID thing's going to keep going, then I'm going to keep going. And one day led to another, to another, to another. And the idea was, if 2020 is going to kick our ass, at least I can say I kicked back. Yeah. So I knew that I had to do something. Even if, only, even if it made life easy for only myself and somebody else, I knew that I had to do something because there, at the very least, no matter what the result, I knew that I tried. I could look at myself in the mirror and know I fucking tried. And, um, well, today we'll mark 226 straight days that I've done VJ Pirate Radio. So I have broadcast every single day this year without a single day off since this whole fucking gingivitis started. And I vowed to go right up until the end of 2020 without a single day off. Yeah. I mean, did, did you realize a certain number of days in that this thing, this you always being there, the sense of stability in this very unstable year, like meant a lot to people? No, no, I didn't. I, I, I didn't realize at all. One thing that happened, one of the most magical, beautiful things that happened is that I became we. Uh, as somebody who always kind of ran solo in the sense that, you know, I don't wait for other people to join me. I just do what I think is right and what mm-hmm. I like kind of thing. Um, you know, if you look at the entire thing, like running a marathon, it's always been me against me. It's not me against other contestants. It's about finishing my marathon, not mm-hmm. about arriving first. None of that. It's about me. So the first shows, no, the first shows, I didn't know that they were going to go in a row the way they did. But before you know it, we were linking up a couple of shows and I decided to myself, okay, well, let's keep going. And it was by show 50. By show 50, I realized... The idea of the Iron Man streak appeals to me greatly. So I started thinking about the Iron Man streak, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, it became a personal thing. How long can I go? 
So 50, I decided I was going to go to 100. And then I hit that goal. And the fact is, I remember, and that's the time when, like, the OK computer thing happened. I remember a time where it's just I was going and I realized I don't know how to stop. Yeah. And I, like, it really messed me up because it's like, I'm burning my, my oil. I'm burning my own oil here. I don't know how to stop. I don't got brakes anymore. I had no control over the thing. I just knew that I would keep going. It's only after um, a bunch of episodes that I kind of realized, wait a second, when does this stop? Because I didn't know when it would stop. For me, Iron Man is you just go on as long as you go on. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm 50, so I don't see myself ever doing an Iron Man streak again. This is it. Mm-hmm. You know, once this is over and I take a day off, I take a day off and the Iron Streak is done. So, you know, that kind of weighed on me. And then I thought to myself, well, wait a second, if this is really 2020, then what we should do is we should make it about 2020. And the finish line now will be December 31st, 2020. Mm-hmm. And December 31st, 2020, we're going to have a big fuck you 2020 party. Yeah. And that's where the streak ends. And by that time, it'll be 295 straight shows. And uh, I already know that it's going to kill me to stop five shy of 300. Mm -hmm. So I'm not completely sold that I'm going to stop at 295. But uh, yeah, after a while, you realize like, for me, once I set that deadline, what it is that I realized is I wasn't running alone anymore. People were running next to me. And we were going towards the same thing together and we were all in it together. It's, it built a sense of community where it's like, I don't feel alone anymore. Yeah. So yeah, I became we, and that's really been probably the the best thing that's happened to me in 2020. And it's, I mean, you talk about realizing that you're not running alone on this thing. And is that really something that would have been possible say without YouTube, say you're doing this on just, like radio, right? You're on Sirius XM or whatever. Because 20 years ago, I don't think anyone would have thought the haven for real radio would be on YouTube. I mean, no. do you see any challenges with YouTube or is it mostly just benefits? Like you have this ability to build this community, to talk to these people while you're doing this show. And you, you realize that there, there are people who respect your taste and are growing because of the show and from it and from the community around it. Well, look, I mean, it's called Pirate Radio for a Purpose. The reason it's pirate radio is because what I'm what we're what I'm doing is illegal. Mm-hmm. Okay. By taking this copyrighted music, and it's basically the copyright idea. Okay, by taking copyrighted music, I am stealing according to the way the laws are right now. You're not supposed to use it. So the challenges are numerous. I cannot do my show property, and it's the reason I broadcast on two different platforms. Okay. Uh, and I've tried Facebook. Facebook, I can't broadcast at all because Facebook, because of copyright, will block your show after one hour. After an hour, if you use copyrighted material, they block you. And when it comes to the replay, what they do is they block out all the music. So basically, they butcher your show. Yeah. Okay. On YouTube, the problem is, is that when you're using the broadcast music, when you're using copyrighted music, they give you these warnings that tell you you're using, we detected copyrighted music and they block you. They block your stream after a while. It's not an hour. It's longer than an hour. And it becomes this game of cat and mouse all the time. Okay. Now us vinyl junkies is lucky enough to have his, the channel whitelisted by a few labels. So my challenges are a little less, but for the most part, there's still a huge amount of catalog that I always come across. So for example, I can't play King Crimson court of the Crimson King. I can't play any King Crimson 
on the show because it's going to get the show blocked immediately. Yeah. Uh, I can't play any Beatles because it'll get the show blocked immediately. I can't play any Jimi Hendrix. I can't play any ACDC. Mm. Okay? Uh, that's where Twitch comes into the picture. Twitch allows you to use that. So they don't block the live streams. The live streams, you can play the entire King Crimson catalog all in order, and they won't block you. But Twitch doesn't have what YouTube have. Twitch, YouTube allows you to keep your bank of material. YouTube allows you to uh, create a uh, archive, which people can go visit later, right? Yeah. Twitch does not. So Twitch is okay. the best live stream platform. But the it's a terrible... The stream is gone. After two weeks, your streams are gone. They don't, they don't keep the stream. YouTube is fantastic for the archive once you scrub out certain songs because you have to scrub. If you use, a, let's say, I don't know, an ACDC song or you use a King Crimson song, you're going to get a message coming back to you saying this song was blocked. And then you got to scrub that song out. Okay? Uh, so the obstacles are very, very many. It changes completely the way the show is run. Before I started doing Zoom and not giving a fuck about when I get blocked on YouTube, I was constantly worried about playing songs that were under five minutes long so I wouldn't trigger copyright. Um, I would stay away from catalog and so forth. And now, basically, I just do our regular show, but we co-broadcast on Twitch and YouTube. Why? Because once we get blocked on YouTube, it's all right, fuck it. We're Twitch. still going. We're still going on Twitch. That part of the show will not be part of the archive. It's gone forever. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, that first part of the show before YouTube took us down is there for the archive. So we kind of exist between both of them. Why does that happen? Very specifically because of the hurdles that you're talking about. Until copyright, until guys like me, and the way we use music is seen as fair use. There's going to be a problem okay so i think the future i mean we see everything going towards that um it's pretty clear that everyone doesn't want to be the algorithm anymore so they want to make the experience as organic as possible so the industry right now and we're seeing it with spotify we're seeing it with twitch as well and i know that facebook is working on things what they're doing is they've now created these soundtracks that you can pipe into your streams. So a Twitch gamer, for example, in mm -hmm. my case, it's radio, but a Twitch gamer can pipe in a heavy metal playlist okay. or they can pipe in a punk playlist or they can pipe in a, a funk playlist, but they still can't play their own music. Until you can play your own music and playing your own music is considered fair use, Yeah, there will always be that obstacle. But I think that the industry is going there spotify like i said what they're doing is now they're letting people uh add music to the uh podcasts so that it seems more like a radio episode the fact of the matter is is what you're hearing is what they're trying to do what i'm already doing playing the music in real time doing real radio completely organic have they gotten there has the industry gotten there no on the other hand i mean Six out of the seven Radiohead broadcasts, for example, were taken down for copyright, right? Yeah. Uh, the only one that wasn't taken down is the OK Computer video, which got 265,000 hits now or something, okay? 
we reached out to beggars and beggars see that and they see that the other shows are not blocked and um they seem to be willing to work with us in order to get it you know in order to get us whitelisted why would they do that well because this many people listened to radiohead this many people and i mean we have a store vinyljunkies.store i see that people are going out and they're buying the records. As a matter of fact, we can see that 27% of our traffic, 27% of our store traffic comes from YouTube. So, so it works. It sells, it sells music, real physical copies, not a stream, not a playlist, real physical copies. And you can see the correlation directly, but yeah. they're not there yet. They don't see it yet. It's because, the, I mean, it seems like the industry right now is very dominated in the digital sense, you know, it's very, Certainly. Spotify, it's very, Apple yes. you're taking something and you're kind of fusing the digital with the analog, right? You're replacing the algorithm with the human element and the Correct. industry doesn't quite see the human being able to replace that algorithm. Nope. They mm -hmm. don't. And ultimately that's what they want. And it's very, very clear that that's where they're headed. So it's very clear that at some point, I mean, the show is going to get picked up by somebody or somebody, somebody's going to finally understand this guy, what he's doing makes sense. Okay. And yeah. we have the numbers to show them that it makes sense. It's like, Hey, look, when a video on YouTube gets 265,000 hits, all the ad revenue on that video doesn't go to me. It goes to Radiohead. It goes to beggars group as it should be. I should not be earning revenue if I'm using their music. I'm okay with that, but there is still revenue, ad revenue being earned on 265,000 hits, right? Yeah. I'm making you money and I'm working for free. Yeah. And we're selling your records in my record store. What part of this equation doesn't work? What part of this equation doesn't work? Exactly. All you gotta do is fucking remove the handcuffs. Leave me do what I do and you're gonna sell records. This, they will come to this conclusion eventually. And when that happens, vinyl junkies will hit a new audience and they'll put us on a different platform and they'll remove all the handcuffs. But you know what? The way it is that you do that is you got to push. You can't play safe. You have to, if you see that something doesn't work, you have to do, you have to do it in the way that you think does work and refine that process. And eventually one person recognizes and another person recognizes and another person. So I'm at a point right now where I'm waiting for the industry to catch up to all of this. And it's going to come across as extremely arrogant until it happens in a few years. And then you can remember that I said this very arrogantly on your podcast. Yeah. And I'll say, hey, you know what? Sam said it. I told you so. <laughs> so watch it happen. So we've talked about, all right, we got the, we've talked about the community aspect. We've talked about the, the discovering music. We've talked about breaking through on some of this copyright stuff. I mean, personally, what do you see as the value of your show? I mean, what makes you get up and go do it? People are having a hard time. That's really one of the big things. I mean, it's become my job. Okay. But people are having a hard time and um, we're constantly bombarded with stuff that's completely triggering people are fighting it's just the world's never been more divided in the 50 years i've been on it this is the worst i've ever lived and um you can't talk about anything and if you talk about things you're just completely triggered and i think that uh you add that to gingivitis 
you add that to people's uncertainties, they're scared. And I think it's normal to be scared. And um, my show, Vinyl Junkies, provides a safe space from all of that for at least three hours a day. Because it, when you're in our group, you don't, talk, you don't talk politics, you don't talk religion, you don't talk hot topics. We don't do that. We're not there to fight. Mm -hmm. We're there to join in community. We're there to join in a manner that is common to all of us. And um, people depend on this. It's very clear that people depend on this. You know, they, um, part of the safe space is them being comfortable saying, you know, whatever problem that they have kind of thing, they feel comfortable expressing their problem. They feel comfortable saying, I'm having a hard time because it's the place to have a hard, it's the place where you can admit that you're having a hard time. And that's important because it allows you to take your armor off. So everybody has to take their armor off sometimes. And the show provides a comfortable seat on a couch yeah. with other people that are friendly, other people that understand that we need to stay away from some topics so that we create and preserve a safe space for everybody to benefit. So people come and they bring their best foot forward and they come and they bring their spirit of love for music and spirit of community. And it's become a wonderful thing. I mean, it's crazy how, how much love there is in that room, you know? People send each other records. People are so kind to each other. We had one member uh, whose dad passed away of gingivitis, and we did a uh, we did a, a collection, sent her four hundred dollar four hundred dollar credit to the store, and wow. she got to buy four hundred dollars worth of records. You know, so I mean, these are important acts of community, and uh, at this point, it's become where I understand that people need it, so it's my responsibility to do it. So I keep doing it. I mean, I mean, we've talked about just being there, and I can't tell me tell you how many nights of my life you've soundtracked, you know, playing at night, and it, it makes it makes memories. I mean, the music is there, and that music now has this this emotional connection that isn't there just picking up on an algorithm because then that's just a, that's just a slog. It's your everyday night. You're just flipping through the music. You skip it after thirty seconds if you don't like the way it sounds. I don't get to do that on your show, you know. If I don't like the song. I keep listening. And you know what? A part happens. Oh, the change. I like this bridge a lot. Now I go back and now I like uh -huh. this. And, it, and then there's, there's more than just the music, though. There's more than just the music. Because I remember during one broadcast, I think it was a, it was a Sunday mass, and um, you used a song lyric. And it re really resonated with me because as soon as you said it, you used it in the same way that I've always used it. It's been like a personal mantra that I've repeated to myself. And you said, got to get behind the mule in the morning and plow. I mean, it's Tom Waits lyric from Mule Variations off, off that album. And um, I mean, why does that lyric resonate with you? Because I've heard you repeat it quite a few times. You'll say, just got to get behind the mule. Because um, there's a big difference between doing and saying. There's a lot of people that'll say, a lot of people with a lot of opinions, but you got to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, doing is hard. And um, I've always said that to myself because, I mean, I, I've owned the album since it came out, which I think is 93. It came out in 93. Mm -hmm. Originally bought it on CD. And um, it always stuck with me simply because Tom Waits' lyrics do that. But I've been working on Vinyl Junkies, and I've been doing this kind of thing. I've been with Vinyl Junkies for a long time, and I've put in a lot of 12-plus-hour days. But now... It's 225 or 226 straight days. And 
it's a fucking grind. It's a grind. It's it's very mentally taxing some days. And um, the only way you could be proud of yourself is to do something, that, to give yourself something to be proud of. Uh, I have always respected a, a work ethic. Always, always respected work ethic because I think work ethic will get you everywhere. So it's easy to talk about work ethic. It's a lot harder to do it. And the fact of the matter is, is that when you're doing something that's worthy, it's not because you coasted through it that it's worthy because then it's not worthy. Yeah. What makes it worthy is the grind. What makes it worthy is the difficult part and knowing that you went outside of yourself and you fucking found another gear. You did something in order to move forward. The grind. The grind hurts, but the grind is where you develop character. Again, if your feet are touching the bottom of the lake, like you know, like Bowie says, you're not gonna learn how to swim. It's once your feet aren't touching the bottom that you find you start swimming, that you mm -hmm. learn how to swim. So it's the same type of thing. Embrace the grind and um it's a mantra in the sense that when I turn on my mic, I don't try to do a show as much as just I'm living three, four, five hours of my life together with other people. That's what I'm doing. And um, some of those days are hard and some of those days aren't. So those people who are expecting a comedy show will be disappointed because that's not life. I'm not performing. This is life. And 2020 sucks. So what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to pretend it doesn't. I am having the same difficulties as you. So the grind, the difficult part of things, the insecurities, the depression, all of this stuff that comes forward with anything that you're doing in order to do something meaningful. Ultimately, you got to get behind the motherfucking mule. That's the way it's done. It's embrace yeah. the grind. Because at the end of the day, what you're going to be able to say is, you know what? It was hard, but I did it. I got behind the mule. Nobody likes plowing. Nobody does. But that's the way it is that you grow your fields. So I, it's, um, I mean, I quote a lot of music lyrics, but it's just yeah. that, that, that to me, Tom Waits perfectly expresses my idea of, uh, work ethic and what it takes in order to get through life really in order to get to anything meaningful yeah i mean i'm sure you understand this i mean you put in so many hours of of your show you're putting so many hours you're working all of this time and the, there's other things in life on top of that too i mean sure. life doesn't stop just because we're working on the show and i i think i think i think many people probably struggle to recognize that behind a single three, four hour show or behind from in my case, like an hour long show, there are hours of preparation. And again, Certainly. that's why that Tom Waits lyric sticks out to me. I mean, throughout the entire song, there's never let the weeds get higher than the garden. You gotta, yep. yeah, you love doing the show, but you still got to take care of the rest of your life. And it's, um, it's a grind. Like you said. Yeah. And the thing is, is that you have to realize that you need to fit it into your life in a way that's manageable. Because if you're doing something, for example, like a podcast, Obviously, there's got to be an element of passion there. You're doing it for a reason. There's a creative element there that gives you meaning, that gives you that that's personally satisfying. Um, you got to be able to work at your craft. You got to be able to suck. And ultimately, you got to make it so that you start, the reason you started it always remains. In other words, the minute it becomes a job, you've lost the plot. 
So your passion, you can't ever lose your passion. And that's one thing that I'm extremely mindful of with music, since music is my full-time job. I will not do anything that will make me unhappy. That is not an, that is not an expression of narcissism. That is an expression of something that's important. I love music so much that it can't be a job. I have to always enjoy what I do. And um, as long as you do that, that core element of what is real will always stay there, okay? So, I mean, I took a look at your podcast questions, for example. I mean, the minute it is that I saw your podcast questions, Thomas, I saw that you were organized. I saw that you expressed yourself eloquently, that the words were picked out well, that it had a certain flow to the show that allows you to navigate your own show, that makes it easy for your guests to express things because you've expressed your questions in an open-ended manner, but you've infused your personality in there too. You know? Yeah. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate wow. it. It's what's, what I try to do. So well, my question is what happens okay. when you get somebody who's as mouthy as me? We've been recording. I mean, we just, we've started going and uh, I let you guide the show. I mean, it's, it's not about me, not about me. It's, it's, about the, it's about the person I have on the show because I recognize that what they have and what they create or what they talk about, what their ideas are, are worthwhile. And people, I think, who listen to the show recognize that they get something out of that. They learn something about life. They learn something about music, perhaps, in this case, something about history, something about education. And um, the guest can give that. I can't. You know, I'm learning just like the audience is learning. I'm sitting in for them. I'm trying to help them learn and the best way I know how to do that is by how I learn. So you see yourself as a conduit up to a certain point? Up to a certain point, because someone has to ask the questions. And I think I'm just, I think I ask pretty decent questions. I mean, I hope so. Yes, My job is just asking questions every day. Answer a question with a question, you know. It's, so it's, it's a craft that I get to perfect in my, in my day job as well on top of it. So it's, I try to, people talk about the work-life balance. I try to talk about like the work-life infusion right you know i want to be able to certainly i mean how am i going to separate my work from my life and if i can always have everything circulating around what i'm interested in and i can expand and get better at what i like to do there's no reason why i wouldn't take that you know well look i mean um what you do obviously shows preparation and i think that you you speak really well and uh i mean it was a, a completely enjoyable experience uh and uh, thanks, you know, th th thanks for having the conversation with me. Hey, I, I appreciate really appreciate it. you coming on. Thank you for taking right. time out of your day. Awesome, dude. There you have it, folks. That was my conversation with Sam Panacchio. I hope you enjoyed it. You can learn more about Sam at Vinyl Junkies. You can find them on YouTube. Uh, you can find them on Facebook. Dirty History is produced by Muckraker Media. I'm Thomas Thompson. The show's in-house renaissance man is Woodrow Cower. And again, Dirty History is produced by Mock Raker Media. Thank you so much for taking an hour out of your day to have a conversation.